listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. We have some cool territory that we're going to jump into this morning. So you guys ready for story time with that? My wife is. Thank you for your support. Hey, uh, I am rolling into a really cool story that is, uh, as God often does, kind of put it in my path at a prime time, related to stuff that I'm preaching about, sharing about. It's a story that takes place back in the early 1800s. About 1815, there was a uh, sea captain named James Riley, and James Riley took command of a ship called the Commerce, and he and his crew set off from America on an epic voyage to trade goods. He goes all the way over to Spain, and then we're going to leave Spain, uh, Spain and head around the northwestern tip <laughs> of Africa. And they were headed for a destination that they actually never made it to. Along the way, their ship ran aground on the coast of one of the most feared places on this earth, the Sahara Desert. And they were run amok in the fog on the coast of the Sahara Desert. They went inland, and and not long after they set foot on land, they were taken captive by marauding bandits, and not only taken captive, but sold as slaves, and then even broken up the, the whole assortment of the captain and his shipmates. And over the months ahead, they endured the most hellish conditions that any of them could have ever imagined possible on this planet. Captain Riley, though, had a lot of grit. He also had something else I think was really important. He had a deep faith and commitment to God. And so throughout this uh, this whole experience, he kept leaning on God, literally sometimes moment by moment by moment, pleading with God to sustain him and carry him through it by some miracle, bring him through this experience. And he also was a, a, a good leader, and he had tenacity, and he did everything at his disposal to get to know his captor and befriend him. The man that had bought him and had begun to take him on as a slave was a man named C.D. Hammond. And so Riley got to know C.D. Hammond, and he did everything he could to learn some of their words, and then through some of his words and sign language, he started to make his case to plead with his captor to try and go and buy back some of the other sailors that had been sold to slave slave traders other places they had stopped throughout the desert. This man eventually is convinced because Riley told him that if they, when they eventually get to the other side of the Sahara Desert, into this bustling town in Morocco, that there there was an American consul that was a good personal friend of his and would pay a huge ransom for his rescue. And not only would he pay a huge ransom for him, but for each of the other American sailors. And so the more sailors you could bring to Morocco, to this town, the greater your reward will be. It was a really hard promise for Captain Riley to make because he knew it was a lie. He had no idea if there was an American consul anywhere in Morocco. It was the only thing he could think of at the time. And so this man believes this captain. 
And he actually and his brother, at great expense to themselves, sell everything they own, cash in their entire life savings to try and negotiate and buy back other sailors from this ship. And it actually even extending the horrible journey in the desert in order to do so. Eventually they make it to Morocco. The men that were on the ship are shells of what they started as. Literally skeletons, just barely clinging to life. When they get to this place and they slap down a dirty, small piece of paper in front of Captain Riley with a pencil and tell him to write a letter to his friend, the American consul, and explain to him exactly how much money he needs to bring to pay their ransom. Here it was. And so Riley says a prayer and begins to write a letter to people he don't even know if they exist. And he, he addresses it to any consul he could think of and then scribbles out their circumstances and hopes and prays that not only would somebody actually get this letter, but if they did get it, they would have an idea of what was going on with him and, and by only God's involvement would somehow this come to a happy ending. And that's exactly what happened. That letter found the right person, and they were bought back. They were rescued. Their ransom was paid. And then many of the sailors got on the first boat home, understandably why. But Riley knew that some of his men were still in the desert. Some had still been sold off as slaves. And so he stayed at great expense and great risk to himself to do everything he could to try and track down any of the remaining sailors through networks and stuff through the, throughout the desert. And, and C.D. Hammett, the man that had originally captured him and sold him as a slave, he watched Captain Riley and he saw his loyalty and his devotion to his men and his leadership, and it won him over. And they developed an actual friendship on the other end of this experience in Morocco. And through the help of interpreters, Captain Riley began to get to know C.D. Hammond. He learned his whole story and how he came to be in the situation he was in. And then eventually Riley goes home to America where he writes this whole epic true story down in a book. A book in the very early 1800s that became one of the most uh, best-selling books of history at the time, selling over a million copies in the early 1800s, a book that a young boy, who is very important to the history of our country, found and read. He read this story as a young boy, and hearing about how Captain Riley and his shipmates were treated as slaves, that they were bought and sold like goods, not people, the, the, the disregard for freedom, the disregard for life, it touched this young boy in such a way that he would never be the same. Later, at 19 years old, when he went to New Orleans for the very first time in his life, he saw what he had only read about in stories, a slave market in full force. Men and women being bought and sold like salt or flour. And it wrecked him. It changed him. We all know this man quite well, actually. This man was Abraham Lincoln. He became the 16th president of the United States of America, and later in his life, 
he would say that this book about this story about Captain Riley and C.D. Hammett was one of the three most important things and influential things that he had ever read in his life. I share that story with you because I think a lot of us are afraid of the desert. Like Riley and his men, they heard stories about the Sahara, and, and the unknown is fearful. And I think that, that when we come up against those times in our life where there is a big unknown expanse ahead of us, we have no idea how we're going to get through it, how long it's going to take, how difficult it's going to be, if it will ever end, it's easy to lose hope. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to wonder if God is even still there. Is God even still listening to us? And, and I want you to understand something. This is so important for us to grab a hold of in our walk with God. Is that God reigns as strongly in the desert and the unknown times and the difficult times of your life as He does in the most wonderful times in your life. And even more, there's, there's even a, a, another facet to this. Like what we often fear, the unknown... God actually has a long history of bringing people on purpose out to the desert. To which most of us are like, why? Right? Why? Why? Like when we're in those seasons of depression, when we are in the dumps and we don't know if it's ever going to change or how it's going to change, when you're battling postpartum, when you're lonely and you feel like you're never going to have the friends that your other friends have, you're never going to have the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the wife, like it's never going to work out for you, you're, you're stressed up and, and anxious about your finances, when you're working through the like pains of grief that you wonder if it will ever go away, will it ever be any different? Will you always be stuck in this hard, hot, dry place? We start to ask questions. We start to ask questions like, why? Why am I here? Why am I going through this? Why is it going to take so long to get through this season? Why is it so hot? Why is it so dry? Why, 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 why? Right? Like we start to ask all these questions. You've probably heard that if you ask the wrong questions, you can find the wrong answers. I think a lot of these are the wrong questions. I think maybe the right questions would sound a little different. They would sound a, a little bit more like, like, why did you bring me here, God? They might sound a little bit like, what do I need to hear? What do I need to learn? What do you want to teach me? And when we start to ask different questions, it starts to shape the way that we hear from God. It starts to shape the answers that we get in a very good and powerful way. And I think for us, if we're going to really wrestle with this, why does God take people to the desert stuff? Why do we have to go through some of these most horrific, difficult, hard, long, lonely, dry times that many of us have experienced and maybe you're in now? Like when we start to ask why, I think we're smart to go back to the scriptures and to look at a time in scripture when, when God brought some of the most important people in his story at one of the most critical times in their journey and in his story, and he brought them out to the desert. He brought them out to a place that looked honestly a lot like that, Mount Sinai in the Sinai Desert. Hot, 
dry, arid, rocky, not a lot of green things to eat. It was difficult. And, and he didn't just bring them out for a minute. They got to the base of this mountain, not for a short time, but for a year, he camps them out here. And it was here that they start to grumble and they start to ask a lot of why questions. Why are we here? Why is this taking so long? Why is it so hot? Why isn't there any water? Why don't we get steak, right? Like, this is tough. How long is this going to take? And it's in this place, at that time, that God started to answer their why questions. Exodus 19. It's in your notes. It'll be up here too. Exodus 19, verse 3. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Like, God is telling Moses to, to go and tell the people, this is why you're here. In this hot place that you don't want to be, that's uncomfortable with all these unanswered questions. This is why you're here. You're here at this place, at this time, to hear this answer. The kind of thing that I think God is still doing very much in the lives of people. He's still very much bringing people to the desert on purpose so that they get to that spot at the bottom of the mountain and out of desperation and awe and exhaustion, you finally look up and say, Why am I here, God? What do you want me to hear? What are you teaching me? What do I need to learn here? And then we sit and we listen for God to answer and God to lead us. And I think some of the reasons that God brought Israel here are probably similar to the reasons God takes you and I into some of the deserts that he does. And one of the reasons is that God wanted to be with the Israelites amongst them. And so he brought them there to be with them. Another reason is that in this special place, God brought the Israelites here to choose a helper suitable for him. In other words, at Sinai, in the desert, God was actually engaging himself to this people group, like preparing for a wedding. Now, for some of you, those things may be old and you've studied them and you're familiar with them. For other people, the idea of God marrying a people group sounds weird. And I'm just going to encourage you that you're going to need to dig in and you're going to need to study and learn. And so I put some stuff in your notes that will help you sort of like uh, as a catalyst on those two topics. Like, why is God out to be among the people? And what does it mean that God's going to marry this people group. And so there's some stuff in your notes and some nuggets for you guys to dig into on your own. We don't have time to tackle all of that stuff this morning. There's another reason that God brought the people to the desert, and that's what I want to spend some time on this morning, is because I think God brought the Israelites to the desert to give them a mission. God brought the Israelites to the desert to give them a mission. Remember, we told Moses to tell him. He, he told Moses, like, 
here's what you need to tell the people. Like, you are here for a reason. I, I, I've heard all your whys. I have an answer. Like, perk up. Listen, here it is. The, the why you're here is that, is that you are for me a special possession. Like, out of the whole earth. Like, can you imagine God saying to them, the whole earth is mine. Right? All of the earth is mine. All of the people and everything in it is mine. And God is essentially saying to Moses and all the Israelites, listen, I can have everybody like that. By might or by force, I, everyone could bend the knee to me. Trust me, I can make it happen. But that's not the plan. The plan is an if-then kind of plan. He says, if you obey me fully, and keep my covenant, then you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's this piece about this answer that God gives these people that, that, that you need to not miss. Obedience matters. Obedience matters. It, don't get confused. It, obedience is not what saves you. That is grace and grace alone. But as you're saved, God has this expectation that when you're redeemed, when you're bought back, that you're going to learn to obey the king that paid the price for your life. And he gives them these pictures. He says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a, a, a holy nation set apart. So let's unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about what does it mean to be a kingdom up front, like the first part. A, a kingdom in English, we get the idea of like geography, like you're going to look out a map and there's going to be a line on the map and it's the border of the king's territory. It's a physical, real piece of dirt that the king is in charge of. That's kingdom in our sort of normal understanding. In Hebrew, the idea of kingdom is much bigger and honestly, much messier. It's not clear lines on a map. The kingdom, from a Jewish perspective, the idea that God has in mind, the kingdom is everywhere the king is obeyed. Everywhere there are people doing the will of the king is the kingdom. And so when you are saved and you begin to obey the king, everywhere you go is the kingdom. And so you can understand how it can get quite messy. There's some kingdom over here, there's some over here, there's a whole bunch of no kingdom in the middle, and then this kingdom, there used to be no kingdom here, but somebody went over there and now there's kingdom there. And it's like the kingdom is where people are doing the will of the king. It's not difficult to understand, but it's certainly messier than a, hey, it's inside these boundaries. So that's this idea of kingdom. So he says that, that Israel is to be a kingdom of priests. They're going to be this community of people who do the will of God. They, they live their lives in such a way that they put their God on display, right? And he makes it super clear to them that, that in order to do this, in order to actually have this play out, 
it, it starts with their obedience. In other words, God's like, if you're going to follow my playbook and play by my rules, then if you'll stick with the guidelines I give you and, and, and everything that revolves around them, like all in, not a little bit, but like all in, if you will fully obey my commands and keep my covenant, in other words, not just at church, not just in your religious practices, not just when you're doing a devotion, but like all the time. If you fully obey my commands and keep my covenant when you're choosing which TV show to watch tonight. If you'll fully obey my commands and keep my covenant when you're thinking about your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your parenting stuff that you're working through, like or the stuff that you're doing at work or the way that you're driving or how you behave at Walmart, like you get the idea, like everywhere you go, 360, 24-7, everywhere you go, if you will obey my commands and keep my covenants, then, then out of the whole earth, Although God could have everything, anything He wanted, He could do it any way He wanted. Out of the whole earth, He tells Israel, you will be my special possession. He will call them out as a treasured possession among all the peoples as unique and special. And, and then He does something else. He tells them they're going to be a kingdom, but He also says they're going to be a kingdom of something, a kingdom of priests. Priests are sort of defined by uh, a couple of different characteristics. Um, the first thing is that a priest mediates or represents, we'll talk about that in a second, but also a priest is holy or set apart. So we'll unpack those a little bit because here's the thing. When we say that a priest, okay, so God's telling that, that Israel there to be a kingdom of priests, so there would be the kind of people that go between God and the people. In the world that we live in, that tends to bring up some cringy feelings. The idea that you have to go to a man or a person to go between you and God feels a little bit like, I don't know if I agree with that. What you're disagreeing with is what is wrong about it. Like many of the stories that we're familiar with, many of the ways that's been twisted and tweaked is really ungodly abuse of the idea of a priest. It's not what God had in mind. What God had in mind is what was normal for them throughout the land at the time is everywhere the people went, there were gods. And everywhere there were gods, there were priests. And the priest's job was to represent to the people what the God was like. And so if the God was angry and mean and frustrated all the time and never got enough, then you could expect that the priest would be angry and mean and frustrated and always want more. And if the, if the God that this priest represented was kind and gracious and, and loving, then you could expect that the priest would have been kind and gracious and loving. And so God's speaking into a culture they're familiar with, saying you're supposed to be like a whole kingdom of priests, like people who actually live their life in such a way that they represent who God is to everybody else. <clears throat> to represent who God is to everybody else. He, and the other thing a priest does is to be holy and set apart. And, and, and this idea of obeying God and keeping His agreement, His covenant, it, it goes hand in glove with being holy and set apart. Because as you obey God's commands, as you stick with God's guidelines and His playbook and His rules, it naturally does something to you. It naturally 
by nature of your choices and your obedience and submission to God and God's plans, it naturally sets you apart. You now are not like the people that you're with. It's the message that God gave to the Israelites over and over and over again throughout their time in the desert, preparing them for the time that they would go into the promised land. And at the end, Moses and Joshua, both, God gave them great instructions to say, when you get over there, into this great place that I've got for you, and all of the abundance, and all of the things that have been provided, when you get there, don't get sidetracked. You are on a mission. When you get there, you need to be set apart. You need to stick to my guidelines, my rule book, my place. Because if you get there and you don't stick with my guidelines and you don't obey me fully and you just sort of wash into the culture and you're sort of little of this and little of this and I like what they do here and I like what they do there, you're no different than them and you're no longer on mission. So it gives them all these warnings about don't intermarry. It wasn't about racism. It was about getting locked into gods that are not even real gods. So God tells them to be a kingdom of priests, people who will represent who God is and what God's like, and to be set apart and holy. So here's the thing. That's great for Israel. That's the command that God gave to Israel, Moses, to give to the Israelites. And so that's the way they were supposed to live. But what about us? What about most people that I know who are not Jewish, that don't fall under this paradigm? What do we what do, we do the rest of us? In the Bible, they're called Gentiles. If that's a term you're not familiar with, that just means it's not a derogatory term. It's just a statement that describes anybody who's not a Jew. That's it. So what do we do? Take a look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. He says in verse 9, but you are a chosen people. I want you to understand, Peter's writing to Gentiles. He's talking to people who were, remember what we talked about, redeemed? He's talking to people who are outside one time. They were outside the Father's house. They were outside the safety and the protection of the Beitav. They were outside the Father's house, and they have been redeemed. They've been bought back. They didn't originally belong to the family, but someone went out and paid the price for them, bought them, and brought them into the family so that they experienced the, the freedom and the security of the family. So, so Peter is saying to him, you now... Outsiders, now you are a chosen people, he tells them. You're a royal priesthood. It sounds a little bit like what God said to the Israelites. And Peter's making it clear once and for all that all of us who have committed our lives to Jesus, who put our faith and trust that Jesus can and has paid the price for our sins, and that by faith in Him we will receive not only salvation, but this invitation to be a part of the kingdom. Peter's saying, not only do you get salvation, not only do you get the invitation to be in the kingdom, you get the honor and privilege of being on the same mission that God originally sent that first special possession on. That's what this is about. And he says that you will be God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people. I mean, you can almost hear Peter saying, once you were outside the Father's house, 
once you were just scattered out there, eking it out on your own, suffering the consequences of the world that you lived in, the choices that you made, you were not living under the protection of the Father. But now, he says to them and to us, he says, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then I love this part. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain against your sinful desires that wage war against your, your heart. Like, so what, here's what Peter's trying to say. Listen. Once, listen, you're new to town. You're new to the Beidah. You're new to the being redeemed, to the Father's house. You used to live out there. And when you lived out there, the rules were different. If you had an itch, you scratched it. If you had an urge, you went for it. If she was good looking, why not? Right? Like, you just lived differently. And now, you're here in the Father's house, and we don't live that way. There's actually new rules, and I know it's new to you, and I know it's different to you, but where you have to start is don't give in to every little urge. Just because you feel it and you want it doesn't mean you should do it. So start there. So he says, you're new to town. You're new to the family. I urge you, because you were once out there, you're a foreigner, an exile, and it's new for you here. I urge you, don't give in to every little urge. Don't give in to these sinful temptations that are waging war against your soul. He's like, you don't know it, but these are the very things that will destroy you like cancer from the inside out. He's like, you have to start there. And then he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Right? So he's like, you used to be out there. You were Gentiles. You were outside the Father's house. You've been redeemed. You've been invited in. Now you're here. You're figuring out what to, what to do. Let's start by there are some things right away don't do. Stop chasing the desires, your sinful desires. Like, let's start there. And then he says, also there are some things you are supposed to do. You're actually supposed to start living in such a way that the people who want to say, oh, they're just posing, they're faking, oh, they started that church thing. Or they think, oh, yeah, they, they got to, you know, you know, invited into that family over there, and they're kind of with them now, like, oh, we'll see how long that'll last. Like, it's a phase, right? The people that want to accuse you of things, that want to highlight what they don't like about you, that want to call out your hypocrisy and point out what you're doing wrong, Peter is saying, like, here's a new way to go about it. Live your life in such a good way. Do good things that the people that want to accuse you of doing wrong, they just sort of get stuck with this, like, except you're so loving. I want to say what I don't like about you. I want to make accusations about you, but I saw how you treated that person. I want to hate this new thing that you're committed to, but it seems to just be making you better. That's what God is saying. That's what Peter is saying. Live such good lives. That not only can they not accuse us of things, but it says that they see God. Hard to argue with truth. Now here's the thing. With, with great honor comes great responsibility. With this great privilege of being invited in, being redeemed, being opened up, and to be an heir with Christ, to be a, a fellow family member with Jesus. I mean, we're not just talking like, 
God's offering, opening up the table to us, like, I'll treat you the same way I treated my very first chosen people. That's that special possession of the Israelites. I'm not even just saying, I'll do for you what I did for them, and I'll treat you the way I treat them. I'll give you the privileges that I gave to them. God's saying, I will count you as an heir to my one and only son. And with that great honor comes great responsibility. He calls us to obey fully, keep his covenant, so that we get to be a part of this special mission, that we get to represent what God is like to people out there that have no idea what God is like. More often than not, they just have all the wrong ideas about what God is like. Based on some random church experience they had as a kid. It has nothing to do with who God is or what God's like. And we get the honor, the absolute honor of interacting with people and, and, and acting as a priest, like showing them who God is and what God's like. Could you think of any greater privilege in the world than to get to give people around you a taste of who God is? Now, when it came to the Jews, God asked them, or actually gave them a command to take this idea one step further. This is not something that God laid on Gentiles, and to this day it's not required for Gentiles. But God commanded something unique for the Jews to sort of take this idea of being set apart, being a kingdom of priests, representing Him, and being holy and, and obeying His commands. Like all of that stuff that we read about in Exodus, He gave them a, a, something to sort of envelop all of that, and then put it on display really obviously, so there is no avoiding or forgetting that that's what God said to them. Like It, it was a kind of an over-the-top requirement for the Jews. I want to look at it with you. It's in Numbers chapter 15. Verse 37, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at and you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands, and you will be consecrated to your God. So God told Moses and all the Israelites to, tear, to wear these tassels, to tie them on the corners of their garments, their robes. Modern day Jews tie them on the corners of their pants. And they are long. And hand, hand me one of those real quick. What's that? Or a couple of those. Thank you. This is a, a, mini, a miniature version. A traditional tassel is actually quite a bit bigger than this. Um, and so they, they tie them on their clothing, on the corners of their uh, robe, or on the corners of their pants. Four of them is what they were commanded to do. And these tassels, uh, if you wear these, you'll know really quick they're a pain. Like, even if you just did it as an experiment to wear them around your house for a day on a Saturday, you will learn they're weird and annoying. Like, they get stuck in stuff. Somebody, every time your husband walks by you, they just can't help but pull on it because it's funny, right? Like, they get little kids in front of you in school, tie them together on your chair. Like, they're not the most enjoyable thing to wear. But they're reminding you always, even when the annoying things happen, they're reminding you that, that God has called you out to a special mission. 
God's called you to obey His Word. Like this tassel is a reminder to every Jew that wears it, obey God's Word. That's a part of why they wear this, to be reminded. It, and it also reminds them that they're on a special mission to represent who God is and what God's like. And in typical God fashion, He tells them in the Scripture in Numbers that there's supposed to be a blue cord in the tassel, and then He doesn't say why. It's very un-American. We really like answers to why. It needs to be A plus B equals C. And anything other than that is just like, seriously, you're a terrible teacher. Like, there's like, and God's not like that. God is very uh, Eastern in thought, or it's where it comes from. And it's this idea that like the value is in the student learning not the teacher giving all the answers. And so God tells them there's supposed to be this blue thread, and He expects that they would dig into His Word and learn more of His story and think about why is blue so important. And what they would know that many of us are not familiar with is that in the Scriptures, God instructed one person, one person only, to wear blue. And not just a thread. A whole blue robe. Royal blue. God instructed the priests to wear a royal blue garment that looked very similar to this rendition here, with an ephod on their chest, which had the Urim and Thummim, which they used to make decisions and hear from God, along with all these other unique elements of their clothing that set them apart. Nobody else in town had that outfit. This was for the priests and the priests alone. And so God, in a way, as He gave this command for tassels to the Jews and, and gave this instruction of this blue thread in them, is He's saying, you're to, be remember, to remember that you're to be like the priest. Among a whole bunch of people that aren't wearing blue, that aren't representing God. You be among them. And you represent them to you represent what God is like to them. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.